Well, if you haven't been with us, we're in a series in the book of uh, Nehemiah, the Old Testament book of Nehemiah. And I thought I would begin this morning by uh, reviewing, if you haven't been with us. And so um, the book of Nehemiah, it's an Old Testament book, and it's about uh, probably one of the, the greatest building projects in all of human history. And so uh, it's a story about how the Jews came back from exile in Persia to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. And uh, specifically, uh, rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem, uh, Jerusalem, led by one man named Nehemiah. And we said that uh, it's a great metaphor for what we're doing uh, as Christians in God's church uh, in the modern world. Because uh, Jesus uh, always uh, compared the kingdom of God to a building project. Uh, You remember that Peter said, uh, you are the, the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, that's right. And on this rock, what? I will build my church. And so Jesus is building his church. He's he's building his kingdom in the world. And he's given all of us the privilege to join him in his building. And so in in one place in the New Testament, uh, Paul the Apostle said, we are God's workmanship created for for good works in Christ Jesus. And so uh, we've all been given work to do. We've all been given a task in this great building project. And so Nehemiah was building, and we're building in God's kingdom. And so we're asking the question, how do we build? What does this look like for us as we build God's kingdom? And uh, just to kind of go through what we've been through so far, uh, so we've seen Nehemiah leaving Persia, uh, leaving the comfort of the Persian palace, and going into danger, going into uh, the rubble in Jerusalem to rebuild the walls. Uh, We saw also that he didn't do this alone. Uh, Remember, as soon as he got to Jerusalem, and he looked at the rubble, he called all of God's people to work together. And then uh, all of God's people said, let us rise up and build. And so uh, they began building, and they started gaining momentum. And the walls started to go up in Jerusalem. But as soon as they hit their peak momentum, we learned last week that they hit opposition. Uh, there There was a threat, there was an opposition to their building. And it came from the outside. And so uh, there were the enemies of God's people, uh, specifically Tobiah and Sanballat, who hurled insults at God's people, tried to discourage them from doing God's work. And so we said that we oftentimes uh, face discouragement as we are building in God's kingdom. It's, uh, it's an external threat. And this week we're going to look at another threat, and God's people are still building the walls. And this time we're going to look at a threat that comes not from the outside, but from the inside. Uh, this week we're going to see that there is an internal threat uh, to our building of, of God's kingdom. And the internal threat is something that happens inside the walls of Jerusalem. And so Nehemiah, he's building the walls, they're going up, and there's a threat, and it actually comes from inside the walls. And specifically, there's a moral collapse. Uh, God's people are beginning to act just like uh, people act outside of the walls. And so there's this moral collapse, there's this assimilation that happens inside of the walls of Jerusalem. And this is the internal threat, and I want to talk about it this morning. You know, God's people are supposed to be different from the world. Uh, John Stott has said that God's people are to be a counterculture to the dominant culture. And what that means is that we are to relate to sex and money and power differently than the people on the outside of the church. Uh, We are to be distinct. We're we're supposed to have a a different way of life, different values, make different decisions than people outside of the four walls of the church. And so often the danger is that we as God's church can begin to look a lot like uh, the world outside of the four walls. 
In fact, John Stott put it this way. He said, probably the greatest tragedy of the church throughout its long and checkered history has been its constant tendency to conform to the prevailing culture instead of developing a Christian counterculture. You know, when I first moved to Arkansas, uh, you all, y'all, were so different. And I found you so uh, foreign to the way I, uh, my culture in uh, the West Coast, uh, Southern California. And you probably thought I was weird. In fact, I know you did because many of you uh, would say that I, you know, certain words that I said in my sermon sounded funny. And some of you even said, oh, bless your heart. And I've since learned that that is not a good thing to say to somebody. It actually means, uh, you poor thing, you are really, really stupid. But I found that as I've been in Arkansas for a while, I have begun to assimilate into the culture. I have even started saying, y'all. I even found myself telling my brother, bless your heart. (laughs) And this is a danger for us as Christians. You know, we're living in the world, we're we're kind of, uh, uh, we're, we're living our lives out in the culture, and it's so easy. Here's the danger. We begin to assimilate. We begin to acculturate. And what, and what happens is what ha- the, the way of life, the, the values, the, the, the decisions we make inside the four walls looks a lot like what happens outside of the four walls. And what happens is instead of being a counterculture, we begin to, to become a subculture. And what do I mean by that? We're supposed to have different values. We're supposed to have a different way of life. But so often Christians begin to look like the dominant culture with a thin Christian veneer over it. So in other words, we have Christian lingo, we use Christian words, and yet we're just as materialistic, we're just as individualistic, we're just as consumeristic as people in the culture. Uh, when, I, when I first got here, I went to Walmart with Chuck McLean, and, and when I first moved to Arkansas, I was suffering from allergies. And uh, so me and Chuck, we, we went to Walmart to buy drugs, prescription drugs. And uh, so uh, we were looking at all the, the, the drugs that are on the shelf, and, and there was the name brand, and there was a the generic kind. And I wanted to buy the name brand. It just looked better. And uh, Chuck McLean, one of our members, he said, uh, Brent, listen, I know the label is different, but essentially they're exactly the same. What's on the inside of that bottle is the same thing as the name brand. And here's the danger. Our label could be different as Christians. We're using Christian lingo, and yet our values, our culture, the things that are going inside the four walls are no different than what's going on in the outside. And this is a tragedy. Uh, You know, this is the, the church. You know, we make the greatest impact on our world when we are the most distinct from our world. And when we lose our distinction, we lose our effectiveness. This is a tragedy. And so the question is, how do we maintain our distinction? How do, we, how do we remain the counterculture that God wants us to be? Uh, how can we, as Jesus told us to be, how, how can we be salt and light? How can we be a city on a hill? How do we guard ourselves against the danger of assimilation? <clears throat> well, that's what uh, chapter 5 is about in Nehemiah. Uh, we, we see here in Nehemiah, there, there's this danger where... Um, uh, Nehemiah notices is that the, what's going on inside the walls here is exactly uh, what's going on outside of the four walls, and he begins to address it. And so uh, what we're going to do is we go through... <laughs> a baby just had a poopy over there. <laughs> Not a good way to start a sermon. 
but we're going to look at two points this morning. Uh, number one, we're going to look at the danger or the problem. We're going to look at the problem of assimilation, the thing that was going on inside of the walls of Jerusalem. We're going to examine it. We're going to go through it. And then we're going to look at how Nehemiah addresses the problem. And hopefully we'll see the problem in our own lives and learn how we can address it as well. And so let's begin and we'll look at the problem. Nehemiah 5 verse 1. <clears throat> now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, with our sons and our daughters, we are many. So let us get grain so that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, we are mortgaging our fields and our vineyards and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers and our children are as their children. Yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have even become enslaved. But it is not in our power to help it. For other men have our fields and our vineyards. And we'll stop there. And so as Nehemiah is building, uh, there's something going on inside of this this community there in Jerusalem. Uh, What was happening was there was oppression of the poor. Uh, In this little society inside Jerusalem, the the weaker members were being exploited. They were being taken advantage of by those who had more power. And in fact, uh, in in verse 5, a whole group of weak people within Jerusalem, they cry out, we are powerless. We're powerless to do anything about it. Help us. And so what's the situation here? Well, well, it started out with there there was a famine in in Jerusalem at this time. And so uh, during the time when uh, Nehemiah is rebuilding the walls, uh, there's a famine in the land, which means that there's a shortage of food. And uh, on top of this, uh, all the people that would normally be farming, all the, the, the people that would normal, normally be out in the fields, you know, harvesting the few crops that were still there in the famous, famine, what were they doing? They were spending most of their time building the walls. And so there's a shortage of food. There's a shortage of workers. They're all building the wall. And so there's not enough of food, especially for those who are poor and who are low on grains anyway. And then on top of that, there's an excessive uh, burden of taxation. And so, uh, you know, Jerusalem at this time is still a province of Persia. And although the king of Persia gave the command that Jerusalem could all, or the Jews could all go back to Jerusalem to rebuild, they are still, uh, they still belong to Persia. And what that means is that the king of Persia is still trying to extract as much money, money as he can out of this little budding community. And so uh, they're paying taxes on top of all this. So there's a shortage of grain. There's an excessive uh, tax burden. And uh, there's the, the weaker members, like I said, they don't have any money to buy food. And so, so uh, what should have happened is that the stronger members of the community should have said, look, there's poor people in our midst. We have the wherewithal to help them. Let's do it. Let's take care of them. But instead of doing this, they said, look, if you sell us your land, and if you sell us your sons and daughters, if you make yourself slaves, we will take care of you. And so there was slavery. There was was exploitation. Uh, And this is not, you know, this is bad enough when it happens on the outside. But this is inside the four walls of the church, brother against brother. Uh, the, the stronger, they're enslaving the weaker. And so the weak people in the community, those who are, who are economically poor, they say, look, we're powerless. 
And it says there arose a great cry from the people. Now, it's interesting, this word great cry is, is uh, it's, it's, it's the exact same words uh, way back in the book of Exodus, uh, when God's people were enslaved in Egypt. Remember uh, the Egyptians, they were, had them building, you know, and they were bricks upon bricks. And there was this great cry that the Jewish people cried to God. This is the same word here, except for it's not in Egypt. This is happening within the walls of Jerusalem. And this is a, I mean, this is a huge tragedy. Because when, especially when you understand the vision of what Jerusalem was supposed to be. You see, Nehemiah, he goes back to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And the thing that makes Jerusalem special, the thing that, that made Zion so great is not so much the, the beauty of its structures, the, the, the magnificent palaces, or even the strength and size of the walls. What makes this city special is the way of life within the walls. And all throughout the Old Testament, God is always saying, look, Jerusalem, Zion, I want, you, I want justice to reign in this city. I want there to be love that reigns in this city. Among all the nations, among all the peoples, although there's oppression and injustice outside the walls, on the inside of the walls, it's supposed to be different. And Jerusalem, because it was so different, was going to be a light to the world. There, there was supposed to be the salt of the earth. A light to the nations. And so here Nehemiah, he's building the walls and he's realizing, well, wait, what are we even protecting here? We're supposed to be different, but we're exactly the same. There's oppression and there's injustice even inside the walls. And in fact, what's interesting is, is one of the reasons why Jerusalem was broken down in the first place is because oppression and injustice had crept in. I mean, one of the main reasons that, you know, Babylon was, that God allowed Babylon to come in and destroy the city is because there was injustice in the city. Uh, this is Micah 2.1. It says this, Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. For they covet fields and they seize them. And houses take them away and they oppress, man, they oppress a man in his house and a man is in his inheritance. Hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel. Because of you, Zion shall be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall be a heap of ruins. Nehemiah is rebuilding the ruins. The whole reason why he needs to rebuild is because there was injustice. And God judged the city. And here they are building the walls again, and lo and behold, injustice begins to characterize the city again. This is a tragedy. But it's not just a tragedy that happens to the Jews in Jerusalem way back in Nehemiah's day. This happens to us even in our culture. You know, uh, we're supposed to be, like I said, a city on a hill. We're supposed to be different but so often we are just like the surrounding culture. And uh, one of the main tragedies of this, like I said, is that it damages our witness as God's people. You know, when people come into the church and they find oppression and injustice, they are repelled from our God. There's a story of uh, Gandhi. And, you know, Gandhi, uh, he lived in South Africa. And... Um, there's a time in his life where he was considering Christianity. He was a lawyer in South Africa, and he, and he wanted to be a Christian, and he was reading the, the teaching of Jesus. He was very attracted to this, and he saw there at, at that time in South Africa there was racism in the culture, even racism against himself. He was an Indian man. He's from India. And so uh, he goes into the church hoping to find a refuge from the racism. 
But Gandhi tells the story. He goes into the church, and as soon as he gets up to the door, there's a man who's standing at the door, and he says, what do you think you're doing? And Gandhi says, I want to come in and worship. And the man says, you get out of here, Kafir, which is a derogatory word for a black person. And Gandhi said, I just want to worship. I know that Jesus accepted everybody. And the man said, if you don't get out of here now, I'm going to kick you down the steps on your back. Get out of here now. And Gandhi did get out, and he never came back. He said, I, I always admired the teachings of Jesus, and yet when I came into the church, I found that the church was no different. Nehemiah sees this. Uh, he sees the oppression inside the walls of the church, and, and, he, and he sees that it's, it's tragic. Uh, this is damaging their witness. And notice it's slow. Uh, you know, the Jews have been in Jerusalem here for only for about 52 days. Uh, this is how long they've been building. And this is not a problem that arose in just those 52 days. This is something that probably went on for a very long time. Sort of a slow assimilation process. And this is the way acculturation happens. It's not like you wake up one day and say, we're going to oppress the poor. Or you wake up one day and say, we're going to be materialistic or we're going to be consumeristic. That's not the way it happens. It's a slow, kind of frog-in-the-kettle sort of a downfall. And slowly, without even realizing it, we become just like the dominant culture. Uh, you know, somebody once said that, the, that uh, the church is like a boat in the water. And a boat is supposed to be in the water, but the water is never supposed to get into the boat. But sometimes there are slow leaks, and the boat slowly begins to fill up with water. And that's the way uh, worldliness and, and, and these sins get into the church. It's a slow drip. And before we know it, know it, like a frog in the kettle, we begin to assimilate. We get used to the culture. We become like the culture. And so this is what's going on. This is the problem. The people cry out, we're powerless. There's oppression in here. And, and Nehemiah discovers what's going on, and he's going to do something about it. And we need to listen to this next point, because, you know, what do we do when this happens to us? You know, what do we do? What, what, what do Christians do when we start looking like the culture? I mean, what is the solution? I mean, it's horrible. It damages our witness. It's a slow drip. It turns people away. It makes us unlike our Savior. What do we do about it? I mean, how do we stop it from happening? And so we need to look at how, what, what Nehemiah does. How does Nehemiah address the, uh, the acculturation, the assimilation that he sees here uh, inside the walls of Jerusalem. Well, in verse 6, we'll, we'll see what, what happens. <clears throat> Nehemiah says, I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words, and I took counsel within myself, and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. And I said to them, You are exacting interest from each his brother. And I held a great assembly against them. And I said to them, We are as far as as we are able, have brought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations. But you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. They were silent and could not find a word to say. And I said, the thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them every day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, and wine, and oil that you have been extra extracting or exacting from them. 
Then I said, we will restore these and, or then they said, we will restore these and require nothing from them and we will do as you say. And I called the priest and made them swear to do as they had promised. I also shook out the fold of my garment and I said, so may God shake out every man from his house and may his labor, uh, from his labor who does not keep his promise. So he may be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen, and praise the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. And so Nehemiah addresses the problem. And what does Nehemiah do? Because we should do the exact same thing. Let's follow his example. And so uh, the first thing that Nehemiah does here is, is we see that Nehemiah gets angry. Verse 6, when he sees the worldliness in the church, the oppression, the injustice inside the four walls, he says, I was angry angry. He says, I was angry. Now, Nehemiah is a passionate man. Uh, you know, you remember in the very first chapters when he saw the broken walls of Jerusalem, what, is, what does he do? He breaks down and he weeps. He's so upset. He's got the sadness of his heart, it says in chapter 2. So he's passionately sad when he sees the bro broken walls. But then when he sees the worldliness and this, uh, this community doing these things inside the walls, he is passionately angry. And that's the first thing we need to do to address the worldliness in our midst. We need to be angry. We need maybe to be passionate, passionately angry. Because I would suggest that just as, as Nehemiah got in touch with God's heart when he was sad over the broken walls, so often we can get in touch with God's heart and get angry at sin. Did you know that God gets angry at worldliness in the church? There is a righteous ang anger that God has towards sin. We see this uh, in, in the New Testament. Uh, Jesus, at one point, he looks at the religious people. He looks at the, the people of God. And he looks at the temple and he sees oppression going on. They're buying and selling in the temple. And do you remember what Jesus did? He made a whip. He didn't just take a whip. He made a whip. And he goes into the temple, and he begins to, to turn over the, the money changers' tables in the temple, and he begins to use his whip on the religious people. And so, and so we look at that, so often we look at Jesus, and we say, Jesus, that's so unchristlike. You shouldn't get so angry, Jesus. What are you doing? Well, listen, there is a righteous anger. There's an outrage that we should have when we look at the ugliness and the sin in the church. There's a great quote by Becky Pippert. It's going to come up on the screen. And it's about a good sort of anger. And she says this, We tend to be taken aback by the thought that God could be angry. How can a deity who is perfect and loving ever be angry? We take pride in our tolerance of the excesses of others. So what is God's problem? But she says, But love detests what destroys the beloved. So good. Real love stands against the deception. The lie, the sin that destroys. Anger isn't the opposite of love, she says. Hate is. And the final form of hate is indifference. To be truly good, one has to be outraged by evil and implacably hostile to injustice. And so here we see Nehemiah. He's implacably hostile towards the injustice that he sees in the church, in the community. And so the question is, are we morally outraged? Even when maybe we look at our own community and our own lives. 
Do we have a sense of horror when we see the sin of oppression and injustice and other things going on inside the church? You see, sometimes we are way too tolerant towards sin. Here's another quote. This is by John Chrysostom. And he says this, The person who is angry without cause sins. The person who is is not angry when there is a cause sins. And then listen, For an unreasonable patience is the hotbed of many vices. And so perhaps you are unreasonably patient this morning with sin in your own life and maybe in the, in the lives of others. You know, there is actually, a, it, when you take sin seriously, uh, you know, there, there's something in the heart of God there. And someone says, well, this is not grace. You know, we need to just be, you know, grace is tolerance with sin. No, grace actually is, is not being, uh, you know, nonchalant about sin. Grace is knowing that we're forgiven of our sin. But grace teaches us to actually abhor the sin of oppression and injustice and things like that. And so that's the question. Are you intolerant towards the sin maybe in your own life or maybe in the lives of others, your loved ones? You know, it's loving to be upset in the sin in the lives of others. There's a righteous anger. There's a holy discontent that we should have uh, here even about sin in our midst. So uh, Nehemiah gets angry. That's the first thing he does. But notice what he does next, verse 7. He says, I took counsel with myself, and he says, I brought charges against the nobles and the officials, and I said to them, you are exacting interest each from his brother, and I held a great assembly against them. And I said to them, we, as far as we're able, have brought our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations, but you sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. They are silent and could not say a word. And then I said, notice, the thing that you are doing is not good. He's angry at the problem, then what does he do? He confronts the problem. He addresses the problem. What does he do? He looks at the church community or the people of Israel inside the walls, and he clearly and he specifically and he calmly addresses the problem. And that's the second thing if we're going to address worldliness in our church. We need to learn how to confront the sins in our own lives honestly and straightforwardly. And we also need to learn to lovingly confront the sins in the lives of others. You know, in the New Testament, it says that we ought to speak the truth in love. And what that means is that the church community, just like a good family, you know, just like a good family, we don't sweep sins under the the rug and pretend like they're not there, we address them, we bring them out in the open, and we lovingly speak the truth and love to one another. We address the problem. Notice, Nehemiah says, the thing that you're doing is not good. I mean, have you ever looked at your own life, or maybe looked at the life of somebody that you love, and said, you know, the thing that you're doing is not good. I know we're supposed to be tolerant and sort of turn a blind eye and a deaf ear, but the thing you're doing isn't good. It's not good for you. It's not good for outsiders. It's not good for God. The thing that you're doing is not good. And so we don't sweep these things under the rug. It's loving and it's right to address the problems among us. You know, this is one of the reasons why we confess our sins in our worship service. 
You know, we come into this building, and we, and we come, and one of the first things we do is say, you know, here we are, we're going to recognize that we are broken. Sin is not just something outside the four walls of the church. We bring sin in here, and we're going to acknowledge it, and we're going to confess it. But here's the thing. It's so much easier to do it in the church service because we say it sort of generally. But what happens when my wife comes to me and brings up something specific? Brent, you're ignoring me, looking at your iPhone. The thing you're not doing is not good. Well, then I get offended. And the first thing I want to do is defend myself and say, no, that's not true. No, 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 no. I, you know, I know, I know I'm a sinner in a general way, but that specific sin, oh, I don't do that. We want to defend ourselves. It, it feels horrible when somebody does that to you, so you want to deflect that pain off. But the church community, we don't sweep things under the rug. We have to address the problems. Now, I love the way he addresses it, though. Notice it says in verse 7, first, I took counsel within myself. In other words, Nehemiah takes a log out of his own eye. Before he, you know, he gets angry, instead of just going and lashing out at their injustice, he says, I got angry. And then I stopped and I took counsel in myself. And, and I started thinking, you know, am I right? Am I seeing the right thing? Do I have a log in my own eye? But then, but then when he took the log out of his own eye and he took counsel in himself, then he lovingly went to the community and, sa and said, the thing you're doing isn't right. And he points out the wrong. <clears throat> so often, those people that are brand new the, to the community can, can see the, our sin even more clearly than we can. I've noticed that when you first walk into a church, and Cody, maybe you had this experience, you immediately see like the broken, you know, the, the tattered rug. You see the weird pictures on the wall. You see it with fresh eyes. And so often, when you're brand new to the church, maybe even a brand new Christian, you can just see the sin clearly. And I remember when I was younger, uh, I was at a Bible study with a friend that I had brought. He was a brand new Christian, and we brought him in, and he heard the Bible study. And afterwards, we had a little prayer group. And so our friend, is, he's brand new, and he sits in this prayer group. And we started uh, gossiping in the prayer group about a, a girl in our group. And she's this, and she's the other, and she's this. And my friend is sitting there listening to all this. And at one point, he stopped us, and he says, You guys, I think this is gossip. And we said, no, 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 We're, this is prayer requests. That's what this is. You see, we can put a nice veneer on our sin. We can, uh, we can explain it away. We can defend it. But here, this guy saw it with crystal clarity. And he lovingly addressed it. The thing that you're doing isn't right. There's a great little scripture in uh, 1 Corinthians 5. It says this. Paul the Apostle says this to the, the, the Corinthian community, which was filled with sin, just like all of us. And he says, For what have we to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Did you hear what he said there? He says, look, we as a Christian community, our job is not to go out into our city and point out the sins of the world. Our job is to turn the mirror back on us and judge ourselves. Address the sin among our midst. Take the log out of our own eye. Lovingly, straightforwardly, look at ourselves and see where we are not doing what we should be doing. And so this is the second thing Nehemiah does. He, he's angry, and so he goes, and he prays about it, and he takes counsel, and then he lovingly confronts the sin on the inside. He addresses the sin. He's honest with them. And, and then notice they respond so well. 
<clears throat> they, they said, okay, uh, what we're doing isn't right. We agree with you. In verse 9, moreover, I said to my brothers and my servants, lending them money and grain and uh, let us abandon exact, exacting interest. And then in verse 11, return to them this very day the fields and their vineyards and their olive orchards and their houses and the, and the percentage of money, grain, and wine and oil that you have been exacting from them. And notice what they said. Love it. They said, we'll restore these and require nothing from them. And we will do as you say. And I, and I called the priests and I made them swear to do as they had promised. We'll stop there. So notice he confronts the sin and what do they do? They say, you're right. You're right, we were oppressing them. We didn't see it at the time, but now we see that we were being unjust and it's wrong. And we'll pay it back. That's what we'll do. And, and, we'll, and we'll take care of the situation and, and we're going to love them again. And then I notice, uh, notice what, uh, I love what Nehemiah says here. He says, then I made them swear to do it. So here they are saying, look, you're right, we're going to change, we're going to change, we're going to change. And Nehemiah says, okay, I'm going to hold your feet to the fire. Swear that you're going to do what you say you're going to do. What is he doing? Nehemiah is, is establishing accountability. He's saying, look, I'm going to hold your feet to the fire. You've given me a hunting license, and when I see you uh, going astray again, I'm going to take aim. And so here's, here's another thing we need to do. We need to give other people a hunting license for you hunters. Uh, you know, we need to give other people the right to look at our lives and take aim if they need to. That is establishing accountability. It's saying, look, I'm not just going to be accountable for my own life. I'm going to open my life up to my brothers and sisters within the community. I'm going to say, look, if you see worldliness in your life, if you see me being unjust or oppressing somebody or being materialistic or whatever the, 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 the thing is that's not right, I'm going to give you the right to come into my life and to address the problem. He holds them accountable. And that's another thing that we do. We open ourselves up to accountability. You know, if we're struggling with something, we say, look, uh, you know, I'm going to go and I'm going to tell a good friend about this. And I'm going to open my life to them. And I'm going to give them the right to take aim. So the worldliness happens. Uh, Nehemiah gets angry. He confronts the sin. He holds them accountable. Are we able to do this in our church? Listen, we never want to be judgmental here. We always want to be loving and patient. But like a good family, we bring the problems out into the open. And we speak the truth in love. And we hope that by doing that, we will grow more and more into the likeness of Jesus and, and begin to even just remotely look like the community that he wants us to be. And listen, we do this in the safety of the gospel. Listen, all this confrontation and this opening yourself up, it happens within the safety of grace. Meaning that, look, we're, these, he's calling them brothers here. He's saying, look, God loves you, and he's a God of grace, and you're saved not by what you do. There's safety here. But because you know that God will love you no matter what, because you know that, you are safe to be open with your sins. And so can we do that here? Can we be a different community? Can we be a community of grace knowing that we are accepted in the beloved, but because of that grace, be courageous and open and honest for where we, where we are just becoming just like the culture? And I'll leave you with that. <laughs> Let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, this passage. And 
We pray, Lord, that as we uh, go forward and, and as we uh, look at this great threat from the book of Nehemiah, the threat that comes from the inside, the threat that, that, that we might lose our distinctiveness, that we might lose the love and, and the justice, that we might lose the, the different way that we regard sex, power, and money. God, I pray that we would be an honest community, uh, courageously and boldly opening ourselves up to critique, loving critique, and learning how to speak the truth to one another in love. Uh, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.